We asked Aidan Lang, Seattle Opera's new general director, to tell us a little bit about himself, his background and experiences, and what opera means to him. We also asked him to evaluate a series of comments made about opera by Spate Jenkins, Lang's predecessor, so we could learn more about where Jenkins and Lang agree and where their ideas differ. And now, here's Seattle's newest arts leader. Well, I was born in Kingston-on-Thames in the same hospital as Simon Woods of the Seattle Symphony. I guess I was quite lucky. I learned about the arts when I was very little. My mother always had BBC Radio 3 playing in the background, and my father spent most, most of his working life um, working for the US government, in fact, as the kind of Mr. Culture uh, at the American Embassy in London. It was always um, around me, even from a very young age. So I used to play the clarinet, uh, which I actually started when I was about seven or eight. I can't even remember what, how young I was. Um, so, you know, music has just been part of my life. And I suppose later on at school, I became very interested in drama. So I studied, uh, in fact, did English literature and drama at university. But everyone assumed I was a music student because I used to hang out in the music library. My um, wife, Linda, uh, was an opera singer for many, many a, a year. Um, she decided to wind down her career when our daughter, Eleanor, got to about seven. So she now sort of has begun to evolve a career for herself as a director. She also teaches and, and teaches uh, opera acting to students at Auckland University. Uh, my daughter is uh, fast approaching 18. Linda and I are very delighted at what a, a lovely young lady Eleanor is. So we have our little dog, Claude. He's a miniature poodle. And um, a breed called a Sydney Silky, so he's a terrier. So he's uh, got a little bit of attitude, and he's very woolly. I'm often asked, what is the opera I would recommend to a first-timer, to a novice? And I don't go along with the theory they have to go and see Bohème or Traviata or Carmen. For me, the best opera for a first-time goer would be one of the Janáček operas. You can choose from Yenufa, from Katya Kavanova, or in a different tack, The, the Cunning Little Vixen, which is a, an opera uh, affirming the very essence of living. They're taught, they're real, they move in, in real time. Um, I think you get, in a very short time, the essence of what opera is. I think it, it hit me straight away when I first saw it when I was a young lad. I love it because... It's direct, it's drama, it's theatre, which appeals to me, I, I believe, very strongly that we can convey great ideas through the act of storytelling and, and the empathy which an audience feels, uh, add the music into it, and you have this incredibly charged tool with which to, to communicate for me. And, and its fusion of all art forms makes it, for me, the number one. My mentors, as... A general director, the person who stands out as uh, the great influence, was Brian McMaster. Brian was the general director of Welsh National Opera um, before I went, but he was the person who really single-handedly uh, created in the UK the idea of opera as theatre. He was the one who invited over the, um, the German directors in the 1970s who so changed the way we looked at opera. Um, and then when I was very lucky to go to work for him, uh, he was an incredibly inspirational figure and he helped me on my way as an artistic director. Uh, as a stage director, 
there are three people who really influenced me, and they were all for very different reasons. I and this was when I when, when I was assist, an assistant. Uh, I worked with Peter Stein, who at the time was probably the greatest stage director in the world. I think it's fair to say. Peter Stein, he said something which has always stayed with me. He said that in the opening 10 minutes of any production, you have a window of opportunity with your audience whereby you lay down the rules of engagement, as it were. So regardless of how complicated conceptually your production might be, you have to give the audience a way in so they know the the language, if you like, that, that the production is speaking. Because if you don't do that, you will alienate people and then they, they leave the theatre uh, dissatisfied. Whereas if you allow them in and, and, and speak to them directly in the, that vital opening moment where they're all agog with anticipation, then you can bring people on to very complicated ideas and engagement at that level. Um, very different uh, to Michael Giles Havigal, who was director of the Glasgow Citizens Theatre for nearly th- over 30 years. Um, Giles has done quite a lot of opera, and he taught me the importance of clarity of storytelling. He always used to call it the little old lady who's on free ticket on the Wednesday matinee, which he would have at his theatre, that do they understand the story? The Glasgow Citizens Theatre was known for... Uh, bringing design elements and conceptualization to the theatre in a way that most British theatres don't do. So very operatic in its style. And yet he would always say, is it clear? Am I making myself clear? And that's a lesson not only for a director, but actually I think as you lead a company as well, is are we making our mission clear? And the third person was a a Swedish director called Jörn Javafelt. And Jörn worked very quickly. What Jörn taught me is that once you've got a structure in place and you've, you've got something down on paper, you then have to keep refining it, like sanding a, a, a piece of wood. Keep polishing, keep polishing, keep polishing, and then you finally let it speak. And in so doing, you can get a production which is very honest and seemingly simple, but thereby gaining many layers, rather than attempting to put the layers in on the first day of rehearsal and then confusing people. So the strange fusion of those three directors, very different in their styles, I think influenced me. So I think the job of a general director needs a good deal of common sense. Knowing what is right and balancing the vision for the company with a sense of responsibility to the, you know, the, to make it that vision a reality you've got to deal in a world of practicality as well that's a vital part of a job it's also um, fascinating because um, it means that if you think creatively one side of your brain is, is, is saying I'd love to do that and, it, and that actually fires up the other side of the brain which is saying how do we do it so I think having one person gives a possibility for uh, making extraordinary things my tip to any singer as to what I'm looking for is someone who instantaneously gets inside the character. It's a bit like a film actor being having to turn it on uh, right at the, the click of a button. So, of course, we're looking for the voice, but I would say that's a given. We're not going to cast anyone who cannot sing the role and sing it well. Of course, we, we you know... We, we relish great voices, but a great voice is no use on an opera stage if it's not going to be communicating the text and the essence of what happens. Um, 
it's why, given an invidious comparison between Pavarotti and Domingo, I would always favour Domingo because of the raw energy he brings. One of the very favourite singers I've ever worked with uh, was a brilliant Italian Mozart specialist called Claudio Desderi. I've never yet met a singer whose use of text was so pungent and so evocative and got such to the heart of the matter. For me, uh, a success is really evaluated by uh, the idea of whether we have delivered uh, a transformative experience to people. Um, you know, you know instinctively if it was a great night or not, and a great night is made by the, the palpable, palpable chemistry between the audience and the stage. I'm very lucky, I think, to have worked in many, many different countries where every country has its own style. And I quite pride myself at being something of a chameleon in order to quickly assimilate the theatre style of a particular country and then work accordingly. So from probably the polar extremes are from working in Germany where things are quite organised, to working in Brazil, where there's an element of, um, and I pick my words carefully, um, inspired improvisation. I've also done some you know, wonderfully wacky things like doing um, Seraglio in the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, sort of doing it on in situ, as it were, um, which was a great experience that we did it. We did it two years on the trot. Um, and I always like doing productions which have something special about them and feel right for that location. One thing I, I really enjoyed doing was a collaboration I had over quite a few years um, with Harry Christophers and his, his uh, choral group, The Sixteen, and, and, his, uh, and his orchestra, where we would take Handel oratorios, which are, of course, intensely dramatic works, and enhance the concert experience by bringing in media, bringing in um, uh, quite expressive lighting, um, partly staging them, but but it was still essentially a concert, um, but greatly enhancing that concert experience to help the uh, the drama of those oratorios come out. We also did the Fairy Queen and Dido and Aeneas as well. So we, we built up quite a repertoire in which we would take round um, uh, various concert halls in Europe. Um, one of the most unusual spaces uh, we did those concerts in was in the Freemasons Temple in London. It's a building you would, you would walk right past um, thinking maybe it was a bank or something. And you go inside the doors and it's actually vast and in the middle, right in the middle of the building was this huge hall um, where I guess the big meetings of Freemasons of the UK would take place. It was very theatrical space. Theatricality is the key. You don't have to be in a theatre to make a theatrical event. So in 2006, I moved from the UK to New Zealand, where my job took me as general director of New Zealand Opera. When people go to New Zealand, they think it's going to be like the UK. But the actual day-to-day -day living in the cities in, in New Zealand is much more akin to living in the States. I think the cities are made, uh, are constructed on an American model. So it's, it's actually very different. New Zealand is a tiny population. There's 4.4 million in what is actually a very big country. So they have to resort to being inventive and creative in order to, to survive. And, and, and so consequently, um, a culture has evolved which is very innovative 
Um, they, they have a saying about themselves. Uh, they, they call it the number eight wire mentality. And number eight wire is the wire used for sheep fencing. It's a thick gauge wire, which if in doubt, you can hold something together with this bit of wire. So um, they, they're very good at improvising and solutions and in so doing, find, finding something quite creative. I lived in Auckland. Auckland is a very cosmopolitan city. It's um, not dissimilar to Seattle in its relationship of city to nature. It's surrounded on two sides by water, and very quickly you can get out to the beach or, or go walking. Um, it's also a very vibrant art scene, similar to Seattle in the way that all the art forms are well catered for at a very high level. Well, I guess my first Seattle Opera experience was actually coming to Jane Eaglin's wedding. My wife, Linda, was really great friends with Jane, and her wedding took place in the former opera house. I have many, many friends who have worked at Seattle Opera, and all had told me over the years what a, um, a special place it was to come and work because of the attention to detail which the company gives to uh, all aspects of, of the production, the way it's cares for its art and cherishes its artists and its serious of seriousness of purpose. And on arrival here in March, that's exactly what I, f I found. Um, and that's exactly the sort of company where I like to work. F for me, for Wagner, there are two aspects to him. One of is the extraordinary and always elusive quality of the music, which is so open to continual interpretation and secondly and parallel to that I guess the density of thought uh, which underpins all his works uh, because for me I think that second element is a vital part of a fully engaging theatrical performance uh, I always say that if we uh, if a performance demands we leave our brain at the coat check, it's not worth doing. That responding emotionally, but also responding, for want of a better word, intellectually, I mean, responding with thought, and, and the balance between the two is what makes a great performance. And Wagner offers us not only uh, that possibility constantly, but also his works are such that there's never a right or wrong answer to them. And that is what's so endlessly fascinating. I've been asked to, to respond to some of Spate's most famous quotes. Um, and um, being Spate, they're always so engaging to listen to. So let's, let's, let's analyse some of them in, in greater detail. Spate likes to, to quote Bigot Nilsson's uh, phrase, songbirds sing when they're happy. And Spate adds, our job is to make them happy. I completely agree, agree with that. If they feel they're cherished, they will deliver a better performance. And if they deliver a better performance, the audience will, of course, feel that. So it's, it's a, a virtuous circle, and I'm amazed how some houses don't seem to quite understand that. It's precisely the philosophy we had in New Zealand opera. We, we prided ourselves, in fact, I think we were in competition with Seattle Opera, we prided ourselves on being the world's most friendly <laughs> company. And I discovered Seattle Opera is as well. Another wonderful spatism is that people have been moaning about the death of opera since 1642. It's an eternal dilemma, I think, that on the one hand, we encourage people to, to remember our, their great experiences, but we should also remind them there are more great experiences 
down the road, and those great experiences may well be different to what they're used to. It's a, yeah, it's an eternal paradox, really, but um, I think people do. People tend to look back because they fix those, those moments in time and think nothing could ever better them. Another spatism is that when he says, a director or designer can do anything they want so long as they respect the text and music. This opens up a whole debate about uh, interpretation. In many ways, what we've seen in recent years is a little paradigm of the way any art form develops. In a very recent period, from kind of early 1970s and, and ongoing, we've suddenly had the move away from the literal depiction of life to a more expressive way, uh, form of theatrical experience. If we restrict ourselves to saying we must respect the text and music at all times, um, we're denying ourselves uh, the ability to, to take that level of expression further. Another spatism, why do we put on opera? Because people love it. Um, yep, they do. So I think it goes beyond just the people love it. I think we actually do it because we have uh, a civic responsibility to, to make those experiences available. Our purpose is to enrich people's lives, sometimes in ways they don't really rationalise, but by that to provide... Um, a resource of experience which is part of the fabric of a city, a, a community. Yet another spatism, the job of a general director is to be the arbiter of taste. And I think that's really important. But it's important that it doesn't just become the taste of the general director, his or herself, so much as the judge of whether the the ideas being promoted will speak to the audience it's being directed to and opera is an international art form and sometimes you see international collaborations which are probably doomed to failure especially in comedy you know what makes people laugh in barcelona is not necessarily going to make people laugh in florida um, and that's an ext that's an obvious example if I was doing a show in Germany, I would do it differently from if I was doing it in the UK. But certainly if I was doing it in Italy, for example, it would be very different. And there's no point in going into Italy with a heavily conceptualised production, which you know they're not in the right mindset to approach it. When I came here, I, um, did, my, I did the exercise of listing every opera which the company has put on in the last 30 years, and then I added it for the whole, all its entire existence. I inherit an audience who are used to seeing pieces they may not have seen, but are willing enough to give it a try. And there are some, I mean, Spates is the first to admit that, you know, he would have loved to have got round to doing, um, to Wozzeck, to doing Lady Macbeth and Metzensk. Simon Bocanegra has never been done. Defrana Schatten has never been done. But actually, it's, it's quite hard to find pieces where you feel, you know, we ought to have done them. I mean, personal ones which are difficult, um, to bring off the things like Janacek's From the House of the Dead, which is an incredibly uplifting uh, experience for an opera set in a Siberian prison camp. Um, some Benjamin Britten, I think we probably haven't seen as much of that as we should have. And Monteverdi in Cavalli. Um, 
and I think the acoustic of McCaw Hall can certainly take a Monteverdi um, because it's so crystalline and and um, you know even even a relatively soft piece of singing just shines like a bell. If I hadn't been in opera, I think I might have ended up in academe, probably in literature, and regretted it. <laughs> and then probably there would have been a tipping point where I would have said, I've had enough of this, I would have become a chef, which I would love to do. I, I, I can think of nothing finer than cooking all night. <laughs>